You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Sam Sykes. Alchemists, I'm Dave Robison, and you have tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is an opportunity for us to sit down with some of the astonishing guest hosts that we have on this show and, and pick their brains, tease out the truths and the secret, secret wisdom uh, that, that fuels their creative mojo in our never-ending quest to improve our own. I'm flying solo today, which is uh, just, that that's just the way things work sometimes. So it's just you, me, and the mysterious chap waiting in the wings. Uh, so let me, let me introduce introduce you all to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. Now, in every culture's mythology, there is a trickster god, a supernatural being who exhibits great intellect or secret knowledge and uses it to play tricks or otherwise disobey the normal rules and conventions of behavior. They break the rules, sometimes maliciously like Loki, but usually with ultimately positive effects, playing tricks and games and by doing so, raising awareness and acting as an equal. Now, dear friends, in researching our guest host, I strongly suspect he is either possessed of a trickster god or an avatar thereof. Uh, Pursuing him through his various interviews, blog posts, and tweets will uncover a staggering amount of bullshit. Uh, But the attentive and diligent observer will soon discover that behind the relentless humor is a brilliant and insightful creative spirit. Now, with that in mind, I'd, I'd like to take a rather large slice of this introduction and just share a tiny fraction of the fantastical truths that he has put forth in recent years. Uh, according to our guest host, he once kickboxed with a kangaroo and beat the shit out of it, which has made him a folk hero in Australia. He has wrestled a Kodiak bear to the earth, founded and later destroyed the East India Company. He created the Renaissance. He doesn't like landscapes because he hates hills. His father was killed by a hill. He contends that science is a myth. Everything is explained by goblins. When he first met Mark Lawrence, he thought he was a raccoon. In person, he says, he's actually only about a foot and a half tall and covered in dense brown fur with a mask over his eyes and a long bushy ringed tail. As it turns out, he isn't actually a raccoon, but a tanuki, which would explain his tremendous balls. And apparently his blood was once tested for anger, and the sample jumped clean off the slide and assumed the doctor's identity, sleeping with his wife, raising his children, and eating his food while painting the man proper as an imposter and forcing him to stare from a prison of lies into the horror that was once his own flesh. Yeah. So let's see what, what else we can tease uh, uh, from, the, from, from the background of our guest host. Now, dear friends, I can tell you with some degree of reliability that his childhood revelation into the wider world of fantasy literature came not through a book, uh, but through a film. Now, he wasn't all that into sports, so when his dad and his sisters would go off to baseball games, he'd stay behind and his mom would rent a movie. Now, one of those rentals was the Rankin and Bass animated version of The Hobbit, which, if you have seen this, is badass. 
Now, we all grow up developing a, a superficial awareness of words like elves or dragons. But now, for our guest host, those weren't just words. That movie put the idea that the rules of culture and history could be applied to imaginary things. And this blew his mind and struck a spark in his imagination. Now, his mother was renowned author Diana Gabaldon, and as one might imagine, she would buy her son any book he wanted, and he wanted The Hobbit. Now, this led to the splendid Redwall series by Brian Jacques, and eventually the Dragonlance series and the Forgotten Realms books. Now, around 12 years old, comics were added to his literary buffet, and again, our guest host sought out the truth behind the idea. In a genre where superpowers and titanic battles defined the scope of experience, our guest host was intrigued by Spider-Man. Here was a hero whose struggles with his real life were just as profound as his epic battles with supervillains. Now, this grounding of the fantastical into the reality of the mundane world spoke deeply to our guest host and would serve as a foundation for his future writing. Now, as with so many of his predecessors here on the roundtable, our guest host was into theater in high school. He had a gift for performance, but in addition to trotting the boards, every semester his class would write, direct, and star in their own productions, which is just amazing. Now, listeners have heard me advocate in the past about the power of theater to inspire the writer, and our guest host is the embodiment of that idea, using the in-depth character study required to play a role to inform the creation of authentic characters in a story. He also began to understand that writing was his true gift to the exclusion of all else. Now, with all these fantastical and theatrical influences, you would think that he'd have been an avid role-playing gamer. Yeah, not so much. Now, he did game, but never really had the patience for it. He'd get bored and aggressive after a while, and in a group of 16-year-old dudes, that can only end in tears or an extended visit to juvenile detention. Now, at 14, he sat down to write his own story. He finished it when he was 17. And here is where our guest host demonstrates insight and wisdom beyond his years. He had written a perfectly competent Forgotten Realms story. Now, I remember what I was like at 17, and in his shoes, I just started shopping that sucker around, delighted that I had written something like everyone else. That just didn't fly for our guest host. He wanted to tell his story. So he broadened the scope of his literary consumption, including the likes of George R.R. R. Martin, to his literary palette. What follows in his life can only be described by the stage in the Campbellian hero cycle as the denial of the call. He went to college and got kicked out of three different programs. He started out in hotel and restaurant management, and as a part of an assignment, he wrote a very eloquent review of a local restaurant. He got an F on that particular assignment, a grade supported by a declaration in bright red letters at the top of the page, words too big. Yeah. He was told to leave journalism school when it was discovered that he made up most of his news articles. And there are many more anecdotes that all added up to the same conclusion. Our guest host was going to be a writer. That's all there was to it. 
He never gave up on that first story, and for nearly a decade he reworked it, gutting what didn't work and refining the essence with his own unique perspective. He landed a superb agent on the merit of the finished product, and the end result is The Tome of the Undergates, the first of what would become a trilogy of tales known collectively as the Aeon's Gate series, and includes Black Halo and The Skybound Sea. Now, recently, he released the first book of a new series that has received critical acclaim from the likes of Scott Lynch, Brian McClellan, and Robin Hobb. The City Stained Red is the first of the Bring Down Heaven series and has established his reputation as a reinventor of fantasy fiction. To quote Scott Lynch, our guest host fights the good fight on behalf of rich fantasy that nonetheless refuses to apologize for being kick-ass fun. And as with all trickster gods, he does indeed possess secret wisdom, which I think is best expressed in this quote from his own blog. Don't be afraid of the influences. Don't be afraid of the traditions. Don't be afraid of the hallmarks. They aren't yours. Don't be afraid of protocol. You don't have to follow it. Don't be afraid of things that tell you what to write. They aren't writing it. Don't be afraid of the definition of the genre. Your work will occupy its own space. Don't be afraid of people crying for the same thing they've always read. You aren't writing for them. Don't be afraid of reading and writing outside of your comfort zone. You're never at a loss for having experimented. Don't be afraid of anything. Now, dear friends, he has admitted that he would get his ass handed to him by a displacer beast. He has an iodine allergy so severe he literally can't eat fish. And at the pinnacle of his hat fetish, he owned an army pith helmet, a fez, a top hat, a bowler derby, a deerstalker cap, a raccoon skin cap, and a prized replica of an 1800s British military helmet. Dear friends... Please welcome to the big chair here at the Roundtable Podcast, Master Sam Sykes. Sam, given the, the delightful froth that is your life, both online and off, I, I, I know how difficult it has been to find a slice of time to make for us, so I really appreciate you joining us, sir. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I, I remember saying maybe half of the things you just said. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I can cite chapter and verse, baby. I am I'm not about to uh, I'm not about to lie on any of those things. But well, uh, yeah, like you 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 make it sound like a lot of this was intentional, when really I think I just start saying things exactly as as every good trickster god should, you know. And I just sort of like you make it sound like there's a grand plan behind <laughs> it. But. Well, that's the whole idea behind an origin story, right? This is your origin story. Yeah, there so, there we go, there we go. My origin story was about hobbits and <laughs> rolling people online. Yes. Well, no, there's obviously a lot more to it than that. But, you know, right. we'll leave it for the readers and, and listeners to tease out the truth behind uh, 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 the fantasy as that yeah. goes. Yeah. Well, let, let's dive into this, Sam. I'm, I'm eager to kick into our 20 minutes with I'm going to go ahead and set the timer. We'll probably ignore it knowing our track record. But, hey, we're going to roll on. Um. Sam, I want to lead off with this question. Uh, in, a, in an interview, you were asked, what would you identify as your greatest strength as a writer? 
to which you replied very simply, an utter willingness to embrace conflict. Right. And I know you've spoken at length about this from various perspectives, and I was I wanted to give you a, a little bit of airtime here. That, that's an intriguing statement. What can you expand on that for us? This is always hard for me to to explain because I think it should be so obvious to everyone. Like, the idea <laughs> of a story is to grow your characters. Like, that is the purpose of the story. You can argue that the purpose of the story is to get from plot point A to plot point B, and that's part of it, but the only reason the story will resonate is if the characters grow along the way, if they change, and if we buy into that change. And the only way that change is going to resonate is if there's conflict. So it behooves any author to consider how they can make things difficult for their hero, how they can make them not get what they want, because when they can't get what they want then they have to either reevaluate what it is they wanted or figure out a new way to get what they wanted, and that leads to growth. Well, as you're working your way through a draft of a story, is there a flag or an alarm bell that goes off that warns you that the, the, the conflict isn't tight enough the, uh, or, or targeted enough or specific enough to drive a character in a specific direction? Do you, do you have a direction that you're driving your characters forward to? Sometimes. Sometimes it's very easy and I know where I want a character to go and it's not particularly hard to get him to go in that direction just by, you know, it's like running a a rat through a maze. If you just keep presenting enough dead ends, they'll they'll figure a way out. Go over the wall. Yeah. Or, you know, they will go through the wall. But, I mean, part of part of the interesting thing about writing conflicts is that your characters will sometimes do things that you don't anticipate them doing. I got a criticism once from a blogger who didn't like the way I portrayed one character or another. And she said, well, like you control the whole thing, don't you? You can control how this all, (laughs) how this all can be presented. And I said, uh, you know, actually I don't, uh, no author really controls it. They only sort of channel that uh, personality for a while. And I, you know, I hate, I really hate it when people make writing sound all mystic and magical. So I don't want to dwell too much on that. But, uh, the truth is the, what the character does has to make sense for the character. So, you know, to use that rat in a maze metaphor, sometimes the character does go through a wall or over a wall, or sometimes they sort of curl up in a fetal position and start crying. And you have to you have to figure out a way to make the story keep moving despite that. Well, and and as you say, that 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 can be not always, but can be a very organic experience as a writer. Exactly. Uh, and and I know a lot of writers who you know are are very, um, I don't want to say controlling, but want to you know very specifically define those characters, uh, and and the actions that they take. But as you say, from a, from a theatricals perspective and from a writing perspective, sometimes that doesn't happen. Now, that's a good place to be, I think, as a writer. How how do you, what preparation do you take, or or is writing its own preparation to understand your characters enough that they can start making their own decisions in your mind? You know, largely it's a, it's an organic process. I can sit down and say, you know, all right, I want this character to do this, this, and this, and that will get them there. But I leave. I try to leave a uh, enough of a wiggle room to sort of get what I need done. But 
not maybe not in the way I anticipated it happening. I I still leave them room to surprise me, and if that happens, then that's usually great. And in fact, like some of the scariest moments of writing are when I sit down and I have no idea what this character is going to be like, and I'm you know I worry that they're just not going to be interesting. I'm going to write them down and they are just not going to do anything amusing or exciting. <laughs> And they surprise you. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Sam Sykes after this brief promotional break. On a quest for domination, evil sorcerers from another land tore apart the barriers between our worlds and the release of magical energy burned the earth. Ten years later, a young woman named Skylar took control of the magic and used it to stop them and seal the rift. Earth was saved. Or so it seemed. Now, a new threat rises. Though the rift was closed, sorcerers from that distant land still live in our world, and the greatest of them, Embryal, has vowed to open a new rift. Helping him is Cassandra, a dark reflection of Skylar, who is devoted to him heart and soul. Will Skylar's magic be enough to stop them? And when she finally comes face to face with Cassandra, will she use her power against someone she so easily could have become? Written by Justin R. McCumber and published by Crescent Moon Press, A Broken Magic is the second book in the Born of Fire series. Skylar's adventure began in 2012 with a minor magic, and now it continues as Skylar once again pits herself against powers older and stronger than she is. Amy Dale, author of Off With Her Heart, says, Justin McCumber's Born of Fire series follows a very unique storyline, and I love that it doesn't feel just like every other book I've read. He has an amazing way of developing a universe that you can see. I am excited for what more is to come from Mr. McCumber. And Philippa Ballantyne, author of Wraith and Hunter and Fox, declares, Justin McCumber knows how to master both action and character. His writing takes you to places you'll want to go. A Broken Magic is available in print and ebook from Amazon and Barnes and Noble. To learn more about the author, please visit him at justinmcumber.com and facebook.com forward slash Justin R. McCumber. Let's get back to the conversation with Sam Sykes. And, you know, sometimes I do get surprised. Like, uh, there was a very, you know, in City Stained Red, there's the character of uh, Quar, who I was anticipating to be a very minor uh, character. But she wound up being a much, much bigger part. At what point did you discover that? Where where were you in the writing process when you realized that this character, who I assume there's a lot of uh, uh, mental preparation, thinking about the story, thinking about the arcs, yada, 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 and then you get down to writing, and all of a sudden, holy crap, this character has taken on more agency than perhaps you would have intended. At what point do you discover that? When do you make that decision? Uh, for Quar, it was literally the scene in which I introduced her. <laughs> You know, there is there is a um, there's a moment in City Stained Red where two of the main characters who have been romantically involved sort of separate for a while due to differences. And uh, the character Kataria goes off on her own. And I, I really thought she needed to explore 
a new relationship. And so I had this idea that she would meet to uh, like the reason that they separate is because of racial divides. Katari is from this race called Shikts who are not well liked by humans. And uh I imagine she would meet two other Shikts and sort of have a conflict with one of them, but have real chemistry with the others. And I wanted them to be a brother and sister. And when I went down to write it, I imagined she would have chemistry with the brother, but any time I tried to write that, it just it completely fell flat. Like, it wasn't interesting at all. And so I tried to write it a number of different ways, and I just couldn't make it happen. So then I, I said, all right, well, let's see if she has chemistry with the sister, and boom, it just it worked. <laughs> and that's the way it's going to be. And, you know, that formed a very uh, big subplot, and it was actually really interesting for me to write just because I didn't expect it all that much. So I wound up really loving that character because I had absolutely no idea what she was going to do most of the time. <laughs> well, how much prep do you put into your your characters? I mean, you, you've, you've been a very vocal proponent of, of character-driven stories, and, and I think everybody here at the Roundtable would agree that's definitely the most engaging and rewarding literary experience. Yeah. Uh, how much... You know, I, I, the creative process, I think, is, is fairly common for most people. An idea strikes, you mullet, you mullet, you think about it, mullet. I just said mullet, and yeah. I'm not talking about the hairstyle. Uh, you, 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 you ponder it, you consider it, you work it through in your head, and eventually it acquires enough weight that you actually sit down and start writing something about it. And yeah. for you, I'm curious, how much of that, you know, after the, okay, I'm going to write this story, how much prep do you go through before you actually sit down and say, okay, now I'm actually writing the story? What what happens before that chapter one on the top of the screen happens? Uh, Well, you know, George R. R. Martin likes to ask people if they are architects or if they are planters. Yes. That is, if, do they sit down and plan out every step of the way or do they just put it in the earth and let it grow? Uh, to which I said, I desperately want to be an architect. <laughs> but at the same time, I plant a seed. And so, like, two months later, after I have built this thing I have architected, it's awful. Like, the walls are overgrown. There's weeds strewn. <laughs> weeds everywhere. There's weasels in the kitchen. I have somehow accidentally walled my grandma up inside the bathroom. And it's, it's awful. But, uh... Like, I I do start with an outline, and that gives me a pretty rough idea of where to go, but uh, it changes. It Like, it changes a lot. And you accept that about your creative process. You know it's going to change going in. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I still get as much of it down as I possibly can, and, you know, that serves me well, but it... Uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. <laughs> well said, General. Well said. Thank you. So, so, so uh, uh, along those lines, as as you're going through and you you discover, I, I assume at the end of the first draft that that this this well planned castle has has become a, a, a festering uh, a weed trap uh, with grandmothers in bathrooms and what have you. Right. Uh, what's your next step at that point? How how do you Having having allowed yourself that 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 freedom to uh, uh, say fuck you to the outline and I'm going to go with what feels right. Uh, yeah. At what point? What's what's the next step? Having having sown the seeds, as it were, of of that particular uh, permission that you grant yourself. Uh, well, like a, a lot of my friends, like Mike Cole, will finish his first draft within like two months. 
Mm-hmm. And then the rest of his writing process is just rewriting, rewriting, rewriting that draft over and over. I pretty much do one draft and like I move extremely slowly. Anytime a new thing happens, I sit and I think about it for a long time. And when it goes off the rails, like that slows me down because then I have to sort of readjust and figure out what it's going to do in the future. And then if it doesn't do that, then I have to re-readjust and sort of. So it's a very slow process, mm-hmm. but it really allows me to appreciate each scene, I find. Like, I like to make every chapter resonate. Like, I don't like filler chapters at all. Sure. They're no fun to write anyway, so I write Right, them. right. So like, I, I'm very much a big proponent of if it's not fun, don't write it. It doesn't need to be in there. Right on. So, uh you know, I, I really take the time to make sure that each chapter has a conflict all its own that increases the overall conflict. So you're editing as you go. Pretty much, yeah. Which 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 flies in the face, again, not a surprise given, yeah. given your track record, but that flies in the face of everything all the established writing gurus tell you. Uh, uh, is that is that just how things evolved for you? It's just like I'm I'm gonna make sure that this is you know maybe not perfect. You I'm sure there's a there's a revisionist pass after you finish this first draft. But but is that just the way that your your craft evolved as you were crafting that first tale back when you were 14? Yeah, that's pretty much how it came down. Uh, in fact, the first, well the first, the 14 year old novel uh, like I didn't I didn't consider anything at all, and it came out like very rough. There was no structure to it. So I I sort of came to realize that over time. And I I wanted to make sure the whole thing was structurally sound in the future. So, like, if you want to use that metaphor, I sort of, if you view each chapter as, like, a floor in a building, I, like, build it floor by floor and make sure everything is structurally sound before moving on to the next floor. Okay. Uh, And, yeah, that does fly in the face of a lot of... Writing advice, but any writing advice, any writing advisor worth their salt is going to tell you whatever works. Exactly. Exactly. Like any anything that works, anything, and especially whatever works for you, do that. Sure. Have you ever tried to just blaze right through on a on a first draft, even for a, for a short story or whatever, and 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 try that that whole bleh, on the first draft? Uh, I have, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really work for me because I will eventually like just stumble through a chapter and be like, uh, hmm. <laughs> it sucks the energy out of you after a while, I would imagine. Yeah. And like, I, I, like, I can't bring myself to, uh, to go back. Uh, like if it really bothers me, I can't bring myself to keep going. Like if there's like all there are times when I'll write down two or three pages and I'll look at it and be like, oh, that's not right. That's that's not right at all. But, uh, you know, one of the other big rules about writing is you you have to finish. <laughs> yes. You got to get done. So like sometimes I'll see a chat and I'm like, well, that's not as good as I want. But I don't know how to fix it right now. And I got to keep going. Sure. In my creative writing class, there was this absolutely, absolutely brilliant woman who just wrote the most amazing stories I have ever read. Just completely blew my mind. And I, had she stuck with it, she would have been, 
I am sure she would have had like millions of awards by now. But she was obsessed with polishing and mm. no story was ever good enough. And, you know, that actually sort of inspired me by example to realize, well, sometimes, you know, it's just got to get out there. Sure. Like you got to you got to turn it loose. Yeah. A cautionary tale for all writers. And I, and I think there's an un, there's a legitimate compulsion. I mean, another of the of the advice. And under, I, when I quote these 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 gurus that are saying these things, I say because I know many of my listeners are, are at that stage where we haven't launched our first novel into the world yet. Right. And, and, you know, Mike Cole will tell you, make sure it's as good as it possibly can be. You know, don't don't waste time with with half assing it. Do it all the way. Uh, so that leads to a, a, a well, OK, I'll make sure it's going to be as perfect as it possibly can be. And I'm, and I'm not slamming Mike Cole uh, no. by a stretch of the imagination. Dude has mad skills. There's no question. Uh, yeah. uh, but when we as as the, the, the neophytes of, of the cool kids set uh, are, are trying to introduce ourselves into this community we want to make sure it's right right at what point do you say fuck it and and i'm putting this shit out there yeah it's uh like because mike cole is definitely not alone in that in that assertion no uh patrick rothfuss said Mm. it a very good way which i have also sort of clung to it can be late once but it can suck forever (laughs) that is that is brilliant that is wisdom but uh, at the same time, you know, uh, this, this is getting into a bit, of course, subject material, but Pat Rothfuss can get away with that. Right. Right. Exactly. Pat is a mega success, and he deserves every bit of it, and, you know, he's fantastic. I, you know, and it's just a rule of thumb. The more successful you are, the more you can get away with. Sure. If George Martin was not as wildly successful as he was, he he could not get away with this. Well, but there's that school. There's you know your first book received critical acclaim. Yes. Uh, 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 you've got you know like Anne Leckie's uh, uh, Ancillary Justice, you know debut right. novel. Bam, Patrick right. Rothfuss, uh, Peter V. Brett. I mean, there's a there's a longstanding tradition of individuals who released their first book and achieved that 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 holy grail of. You know, maybe not stardom, but certainly uh, credibility in, right. in in the community, and uh, that that I think that sends almost maybe a mixed message in some not a mixed message, but in some respect that's intimidating for for other writers. They want to do the same thing because they can see the merit of that. Yeah, which is weird because like if you're if you're chasing if you're writing fantasy for like stardom or money, you are. <laughs> Wrong damn business. <laughs> yes, this is true. This is true. But there is there there is the the credibility among your peers. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and you know telling a good story, which actually let me derail this for just a second. Um, I know Sam, you've said you, you write because <laughs> that's all you can do. There's nothing else for you. Right. Uh, uh, and and so that that's a, that's that's one motivation. Putting that aside, you you had said in 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 a in an interview. Uh, you can whack a reader over the head with messages, uh, uh, but then that message won't be theirs. Right? Uh, uh, they 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 not they may not register what's going on at first, but on some level they'll get it and draw their own conclusion if you do it well. And with that in mind, it assumes that there's a message that you, as the author, are trying to convey. Which which begs the question: Then why are you writing? 
not that you can't do anything else. Okay, we've got that, but you could write a hundred bajillion different things. Yeah, uh, and and putting aside you know your your DNA with with the Hobbit and and Forgotten Realms and Dragonlands, which are awesome foundational influences, but you've persisted and you've done incredibly well, and you tell incredible stories through that. Why? Uh is there a message? Is there is there an ag- not an agenda? That sounds so contrived but yeah. but what what are you trying to do with your writing there's a lot of different messages there i believe that every story can be boiled down to one question and that is which is stronger love or fear and i feel like every story revolves around this question and you know, every author draws their own conclusion. And, you know, I don't want to talk about Grimdark too much, but you can make the assertion that Grimdark says, you know, fear is stronger. It is the more natural human emotion. Uh, I, 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 I disagree. Okay. I think fear is a very powerful emotion. I think love squeaks out ahead. I don't, I don't think it's like the, uh, the sterilized fantasy of the eighties where it's like true love conquers all. <laughs> I think, like, at the end of the day, someone who feels love will find it easier to pick themselves up and dust themselves off and keep going. So so you're basically affirming a, a, a life view through your stories. I'm affirming my life view. And, right. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and everyone else gets their own view, and I, I absolutely never disagree with what uh, a reader says they get out of my books because they're always right they're always right that is a com- that is whatever they got they got and you know i can't i don't i don't like it when authors go like oh well you didn't read my book right i'm like that. <laughs> well then include an instruction manual on how i'm supposed to fucking read your book yeah no like that is that is patently ridiculous and you know uh, sure it's it's extremely frustrating sometimes when an author gets some when a reader gets something that you did not intend and when you know and in fact it does happen when a critic reads things that are not actually there Mm -hmm. and you know sometimes it gets completely flagrant but uh do you have an example uh in your own work maybe I'm trying to think, but like someone just described something that just patently did not happen. Like in an in an attempt to deride my work, they they just sort of started describing something that wasn't there, projecting their own experiences into what they're reading. Right, and you know, you know I I don't want to uh, claim they had an agenda or some. They clearly didn't like the writing, and they wanted to reinforce that they didn't like it. And I'm, <laughs> But as I was reading through it, I'm like, wow, what what were you reading? Because <laughs> it sure as hell wasn't my book. Like this this isn't my book. You were you're really upset about something that doesn't exist. Yeah. And and and, and you've also been very vocal about how you kinda of gotta let that go. Oh yeah. Uh you know, every author eventually stops reading their reviews. Sure. Because there's nothing you can do with them. Except for Mark Lawrence. Except for Mark Lawrence. Uh but uh like i i don't read many of them if someone links me to them yeah i'll read them sure but uh most of the time there's not much i can do about them right you know like uh someone will give me 
a review that said, boy, I really don't like this character. I'm like, well, sorry. I mean, I take that as kind of a compliment because it's like, all right, that's a legitimate character then. So where do you go for for criticism of your work? Weirdly, I I do get it from readers, but they like approach me. They uh, face. Well, you know, they don't like punch me in the face or anything, but you know, someone will tweet me and say like, "Hey, why'd you do this?" And I will just sort of blink and I'll say, "You know, I really don't know." <laughs> and seemed like a good idea at the time. Yeah, and they'll say like, "I really wish they had done this." And I I will think I'm like, "You know, that would have been pretty cool. I wish I had done that too." But <laughs> <laughs> But this is the story as it is. But this is the story as it is, but uh, you know, I I feel like as you go on and God this is why I feel so useless talking about how to write because so much of it just becomes instinct that you almost can't like you can't point to something and say do this right. and you will get this. But I just want to be like uh you will start learning what you can use and what you can't just by looking at it. And like you can tell when someone is giving you honest criticism and you can tell when someone is not and you can tell when someone is just trying to hurt your feelings and, you know, you just develop that sort of that sort of scent for bullshit. Sure. Well, and it, and it goes back down to the just do it. Just write. Get yeah, into pretty it much. and let that go. And part of the reason why why I conduct this podcast and other podcasts interview and ask these questions is I think not so much that we can circumvent the the learning process but mostly so we can look ahead and and look for signposts and be aware of things as we go through them but we still have to go through them i don't think anybody's trying to 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 end run the learning curve the steep learning curve of, no. of the writer but i i would take that as an optimistic sign the idea that because it is one of the fundamental truths of writing is that the more you do it the better you will get Yes, absolutely. That is, I, I, I rarely speak so heavy-handedly and try to present things in such yes or no terms, but that is a completely honest truth. Absolutely. If you, the more you write, the better you get, and if you write every day, it will get better much quicker. I had some reader get extremely mad at me for saying that, but I'm like, look, <laughs> it's true. Keep writing. Find yeah. out for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and that and that's I think that's a good a good sentiment to wrap up this 20 minutes with because the, the, the clock has has literally turned into this rabid hedgehog and is menacing me with quills. So I, I, I can see we're far past our 20 minutes and it's and it was far past well spent. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time for this. Uh, this this has been a pleasure and and an inspiration. I appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, friends, here's the deal. Uh, you hang out for just seven days. Seven days is all you got to wait because in seven days, we're going to have Sam back and we're going to have Sam dive into the froth that is the Roundtable podcast and brainstorm an awesome story idea. So do make your way back to the Roundtable in one week for that. And I know, I know that's a long time to wait and it's terrible of us to, to, to dangle that out in front of you like this tasty carrot. So, so I will I will leave you with two words of wisdom. One from my 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 sage co-host of of days past, Brian Humphrey. In the next seven days, go right. Just sit down, get your butt in the seats, and fingers on the keys. Make that happen. 
And I'll also tell you, friends, you find what you're looking for. So look for the good stuff. Look for the awesome. Look for the, oh, hell yeah. And I promise you, if you look for it, you will find it. We'll see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys, you stay cool, you stay frothy, and you stay awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by the Roundtable Podcast and released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable Podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.